Well, let's come to this God who is mighty to save and mighty to move mountains. In the third verse of our reading that's coming next, it says this. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Lord, we come to you today in repentance and total dependency upon your grace to restore, return and revive us to be a people and nation that you command us to be. We have become like Nehemiah's people and like Jerusalem. We are in great trouble and disgrace. Fear, confusion, economic distress and fallout, poor mental health and death has come to us as a consequence of COVID-19. The people of this nation are reeling and staggering under the weight of this crisis. Have mercy on us, Lord, and forgive our sin. We mourn the destruction of godly rule, law, and reference in favour of self-rule and man-centred law. The enemy has broken down our walls and burned our gates. Revive your church, awaken the people, and rebuild this nation to be a light to the world and to glorify its maker. We pray for our government at this time, for wisdom to halt the spread of the virus and to get people to a healthy normality. We pray that there will be a boldness among Christians in Parliament to speak your wisdom into the current and ongoing situation. We pray for the upcoming online mission we pray that it would reach its target <clears throat> and that it would be effective in touching hearts and minds. And we pray that the testimonies will resonate with people's experience and that there may be a turning to you. We pray that the enemy will not snatch away the seed and that it will grow to yield its fruit. And we thank you that we can gather here this morning and for the other ministries like Baby Box and Spectrum, Rare and Table Tennis that are beginning to meet together again. And we pray for an end to this coronavirus that we may indeed be able to meet together again as we used to. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to read from chapter 1 of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Morning, everybody. Let's uh, pray as we come to, to God's word. Father God, we do pray you would open our eyes this morning to see what your word says. That you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to each one of us. And you would open our hearts to respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, how's your prayer life? I don't know when the last time was that somebody asked you that question and uh, uh, what reaction it caused in you. Uh, maybe to squirm with, with guilt or embarrassment um, or to pry. Actually, it's pretty good. Thanks very much. I guess if we're honest, though, all of us probably would say we would like it to be better than it actually is. We'd like it to be more uh, regular, more consistent, uh, more heartfelt. The purpose of this series on prayer is not to leave you feeling beaten up about the state of your prayer life, but to inspire you with how it could be. Because prayer is not meant to be a duty. It is a joy in which we have the privilege of communicating with our Heavenly Father, who is also the God of the universe. And the truth is God loves our prayers. Um, he loves to answer them. 
And so when we, when we finally get around to praying, he doesn't respond with a grumpy, um, haven't heard from you for a while, but with great delight. We're starting our series this morning by looking at our, our attitude to prayer and what it means to pray from our hearts. And what better example to look to than that of Nehemiah? Who was Nehemiah? If you're not familiar with uh, uh, the background to this uh, this book of the Bible, well, let me give you a little little bit of that. In 587 BC, Jerusalem was attacked. Uh, the city and its temple were destroyed, and the people of Judah were taken into uh, to captivity to live in in Babylon. Why did God allow that to happen? Well, because despite all his many warnings, the people continued to reject him. They turned to other gods and their worship of the one true God became meaningless. And so God finally gave them the punishment they deserved. But the situation wasn't totally hopeless because within the warnings that the prophets gave, there were also messages of hope. God promised that he would raise up Cyrus of Persia, who would conquer Babylon and set his people free. Which is exactly what did happen 50 years later. At that point, many of the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. It wasn't straightforward. They came up against foreigners who had resettled there. It took over 30 years to complete the rebuilding. But even after rebuilding the temple, the spiritual state of the nation was poor, which is why another Jew living in exile called Ezra set off for Jerusalem in 458 BC to reestablish God's law. And that's the setting for the book of Nehemiah, which takes place, we're told, in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, which was 446 BC. Nehemiah was a Jew who was living quite a comfortable life as a cupbearer to the king of Persia in the city of Susa. A cupbearer was more than just a, a butler. It was a high-ranking official in the palace of the king. The cupbearer had to be totally trustworthy as he had to guard against poison in the king's cup. But Nehemiah's life is about to be turned upside down. When one of his brothers, Hanani, uh, together with some men from Judah, arrive in Susa. The Jews in Jerusalem may be a long way away from Jerusalem. Their life may be very different. But Nehemiah has not lost his concern for them. And he takes the opportunity to find out how things are going. Well, unfortunately, the news is not great. As it says in uh, verse 3, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And the significance of this news was not just that um, the city of Jerusalem needed a bit of building work, nor even that it was open and vulnerable to foreign enemies, but it represented the spiritual condition of the people there. Nehemiah would have been aware that Ezra had gone to Jerusalem 12 or so years earlier, but it appears from this news that things have not improved. So what does he do? Well, he prays from his heart. And in this account of praying, there are some important lessons that we can learn about what it means to pray from our hearts. The first is that praying from our hearts means having compassion for those in need. Nehemiah could have just said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And just gone back to what he was doing. Just please send everybody my concern. 
But it says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And not just for five minutes, but for some days, it says, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What is it that makes us weep for people? I wonder how well we need to know people before we identify with them, before we feel concern and compassion for them. It's great to have so much information these days, isn't it, about what is going on in the rest of the world, about, about the persecuted church. The trouble is, as human beings, our emotional capacity is limited, whereas God's isn't. Um, God has an infinite capacity for compassion. Compassion isn't something we can somehow manufacture, but we can pray that God would give us a greater capacity, a greater heart of love. The surprising thing in this passage is that what had happened to the Israelites in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day was their own fault. They they weren't just innocent victims of an aggressive nation. They'd allowed themselves to get into this position because of their disobedience to God. God had warned them what would happen if they persisted in rebellion. And I'm sure we can all think of individuals who have messed up their lives. Um, We may even be the ones who warned them. And yet they messed them up anyway. And you may think deep down, well, if only you'd taken my advice. But that doesn't stop us weeping for them. 500 years later, Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and wept. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. It's not just individuals, is it? We see churches that were once thriving but took a wrong decision, a wrong direction, and fell apart. And we can be filled with self-righteous anger. We can say, well, um, it wouldn't have happened if they'd done what they should have done. We can wash our hands of them. All we can do is Nehemiah did and weep for them. Because at the end of the day, we know better ourselves. Nehemiah wept. He mourned for God's people. And secondly, he prayed for them. And that meant approaching God in humility. Because praying for the heart means approaching God <clears throat> in humility. Nehemiah begins his, his prayer, have a look at verse 5 there, with praise by reminding himself of the God he is addressing. The personal Lord, Yahweh, the, the one who has compassion for his people, who wants to relate to his people. The mighty God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who is sovereign over his world, who can achieve his purposes. The covenantal God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. A different love from the general concern God has for those he made. A special love he has for the people who will follow him and obey him. And how does Nehemiah approach this God? Well, he comes to him in humility, knowing he doesn't have a a right to a hearing. But he asks him to let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear his prayer. Why? Because he's praying for God's people whom God loves. And whilst praising God for his holiness, we are aware of our own sin that um, causes God pain. And so having praised God, Nehemiah moves to confession. 
And here Nehemiah is throwing himself at God's mercy. And notice he doesn't just pray for those, those other people who, who have messed up. He includes himself in his prayer as someone who needs forgiveness. This is what he prays. He prays, I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. The reason we can approach God in the first place is that our sins have been forgiven. If we put our faith in in Jesus Christ as the one who died in our place, who took the punishment we deserved, then we can approach the throne of God. We can approach with confidence because we've been made right with him. That doesn't, of course, mean we we no longer sin. And when we're praying for others in trouble, it's important to, to remember that we are actually no better than they are. We all need God's ongoing forgiveness. It's also important to ensure when we approach God with our requests that there is no area of sin in our lives that we haven't dealt with. We can't expect God to, to answer our prayers when we're deliberately disobeying him. Or having addressed God as the Lord who, who keeps his covenant of love, having confessed his own sins and those of his people, Nehemiah appeals to the promises that God has made in his covenant. If you look at verse 8, he prays, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The basis of the covenant is that God has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. When the people failed in their covenant responsibilities and no longer worshipped him as God, then he did what he said. He scattered them among the nations. But Nehemiah is saying that your people have returned to you. Therefore, keep your promise to gather them and bring them to your chosen place, to Jerusalem. And he continues in verse 10. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. The redemption he's talking about here is probably the rescue from slavery in Egypt that had happened many hundreds of years before, but also the rescue from exile in Babylon. Redemption which points to a greater redemption, the redemption that Jesus Christ achieved for us on the cross when he rescued us all from slavery to sin. A rescue we'll be celebrating shortly um, in the Lord's Supper. And that redemption is part of the new covenant that God promised he would establish with his people, as referred to in the book of Jeremiah. There he says in Jeremiah, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. I wonder when we approach God, whether we sometimes think of him maybe as a a bit of a reluctant God. Doesn't really want to, to bless us, a bit of a Scrooge type character. 
God has said here in his covenant that he will never stop doing good to us. He will rejoice in doing us good. It's not that he's got all these, these wonderful gifts that he's, he's holding on to and will only let go of begrudgingly in small amounts. He's longing to shower us with them if we just ask him. And the fear that he's talking about here is not a fear of someone who wants to do us harm, but the respect for someone who knows what is best for us and who knows when to bless us. And the fact that he doesn't give us always what we want when we ask for it doesn't mean that he doesn't want to do us good. It's because he has a greater understanding of what is best for us. We should go to God appealing to the promises he's made in his word. What are the promises you need to, to hear right now? What are the promises you need to remind God of and appeal to him about? Maybe for you, you're feeling weak and afraid at this time. Well, if so, appeal to God on the promise of what he said in Isaiah 41. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a wonderful promise. What about if you're just wrapped with, with guilt at the moment? Well, appeal to God on the basis of his promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What about if you're struggling just with doubt? Maybe you're worried about falling away, whether you're really saved. Well, appeal to God on the basis of his promise in Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. What about if you're worried about dying? Or appeal to God on this basis of his promise in Romans 14. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Praying from our hearts means appealing to God's promises. And finally, praying from our hearts means appealing means wanting to help. Nehemiah's request comes right at the end of the prayer. He's not, he's not a passive prayer. He's not saying, Lord God, please help your people back in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, I'll carry on with my own life. He's saying, please help them and use me in any way that I can be useful. I offer myself as your servant, Lord. Just look at the number of times that the word servant is used in this prayer. Have a look at verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He asks God to answer his prayer, not because of what he might get out of it, but so that he can serve God, so he can do God's will. Who is that the man he's referring to at the end there? Well, only now does Nehemiah tell us in one short sentence at the end of the chapter. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Not just any old king, but the most powerful king in the world at that time. King Artaxerxes, who had already reigned for 20 years over the the whole Persian Empire. And yet, he was just a man. 
first mention this powerful king gets is his description as a man. Why is this significant? Because Nehemiah has rightly taken his petition to the real king, the king of all kings, the God himself. Compared to God, Artaxerxes is just a man created by God. If we have a look at chapter 2, flick over there for uh, briefly, what we will see is that Nehemiah plans to go and see the king and ask for permission to return to Jerusalem to help his people. And we're told in verse 2 of chapter 2 that uh, he was very much afraid. It's not just that the king could uh, simply refuse his request. He could actually have him uh, thrown into prison. He could have him executed for daring to ask such a thing. Nehemiah is totally dependent on the Lord intervening, which is why he asks for his help first. And when he eventually goes in to see the king, which is actually a few months later, it reminds us of the importance of waiting, waiting on God when we come to him with our prayers. Do not expect an immediate answer necessarily. Praying is about coming to God in humble dependence, allowing him to work in his timing. And the waiting often serves to increase our, our dependence on him. It prepares us for what he wants us to do. And if you've been waiting a long time for an answer to prayer, then don't be discouraged, but make the most of this time before God calls you to act. It's in the waiting that God often teaches us. Nehemiah was actually leading a very comfortable life in many ways. Uh, as we've said before, cupbearer to the king, carried much influence. He had quite a lot to give up. If he were to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, he would probably have to leave many of his friends and family behind. It would be a tough job, not just physically, but in terms of motivating the people, in terms of resisting opposition to that rebuilding. You could say, well, was it really worth the hassle? Why don't you just carry on doing what you're doing? After all, you can still pray for them. The thing is, when God calls people to do tasks like this, the first thing he does is give them a passion for it. He moves their hearts. And once you've got that passion, then those other things, those barriers holding you back, will disappear. You talk to those who've been called uh, into full-time ministry or called to serve God overseas or maybe called to become a foster parent. They have a radical change in their lives. They will tell you they've been compelled to do it by God. Is there something God has given you a passion for that you feel compelled to get involved with? Maybe it is to, to give up um, your time and comfort to serve in a new area of Christian ministry. Maybe it's to give up your money to a cause for which God has put on your heart a great concern. Maybe God is giving you a real compassion for a Christian brother or sister in need or somebody who doesn't yet know Christ and you want to help them. And you're praying that God would give you the, the gift you need to be able to help them in their situation. Now you may not be able to do anything practically particularly in the current situation where many of you are, are shielding. Maybe for you it is a greater commitment to prayer. Don't underestimate the power of praying from our hearts. As Nehemiah goes into the king's presence, God gives him the boldness 
to tell the king what he feels and where his true loyalty lies. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says there, Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. What has God laid on your heart? If God has laid something on your heart, then he wants you to ask for it. So let's be those who pray from our hearts and call upon the gracious hand of the Lord. It's a lovely moment, isn't it, as you look around the room? You may feel like there's a, a sense of, of barrier as you look at people's masks on their faces, but the reality is very different. The reality is we are united together as one body because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we, as we thank him. Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to take our place on the cross. Thank you that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, a sheer gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Father, we praise you for the opportunity this morning to stop and to reflect again upon the work of Christ. And we praise you, Lord, that as we come before you this morning, we recognize that Jesus isn't only our crucified Savior, but he's also our risen one. Jesus Christ is alive. And through faith in him, we have been born again into a living hope. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Well, I hope you've been encouraged uh, by our time together this morning, encouraged by what God has said to you, um, encouraged by being together, by sharing in the Lord's Supper together, and encouraged, as we thought about this morning, to really pray from the heart, to come before our God in heaven and pray that his glory would be seen and visible and manifest in this world through the life of his church uh, here in Long Crendon and beyond. I'm going to finish by reading the words from uh, Paul's prayer, Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.